We're in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6 tonight. I've been chewing on this over the last week, and I'm filled to overflow. I got nourished, and I hope you find it to be nourishing as well. Here we are, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. It says, for while we were still helpless, Paul is including himself in this group of those who he is writing to, we meaning believers, for while we believers were at one time still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You know what that means? He did not wait for us. God did not wait for us to be worthy of him in any way. He waited instead for the time when we had sufficient opportunity and evidence to see how unworthy we are. You see, by this time, the law of Moses had been around for centuries. And the Jewish people, who were the recipients of it, made their best effort of, uh, of being right in God's eyes by the doing of the law of Moses. They failed miserably. God said, don't, and they did. God said, do, and they didn't. The law defined for them their nature. Nothing wrong with the law, but there was plenty wrong with them. Don't lie, they lied. Don't covet, they coveted. So this had been around for a long time. Not only did the law of Moses provide them evidence of their unworthiness, there was a pantheon of all kinds of false deities and religions emanating from them in Greco-Roman culture. Good night. They didn't do any better than the Jews. The Gentiles were just as bad. Nobody could settle the score with Almighty God through human effort. So the Lord Jesus didn't wait for folks to be ready for him through their own virtue and effort. Instead, he let human history unfold. He said to humankind, give it your best shot. Come on, I dare you. Let's see if you could affect a peaceful relationship between the two of us by your own good deeds, by your own efforts. Well, when there was plenty of evidence that nobody could, at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't wait for us to be able to help ourselves with regard to him, no. The text says, while we were still helpless at the right time, as God reckoned it, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't wait for us to be spiritually or morally strong. He didn't wait for us to be godly. No, while we were weak and helpless and ungodly, at the right time, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we had performed well enough so as to merit his love. No, on the contrary, at the right time, he acted in love and died for the ungodly. Folks, we weren't merely weak. We were and not merely helpless. We weren't merely unable to please him. This is really bad. We didn't want to please him. We weren't just weak, you see. We were ungodly, a pretty serious sin situation. And at the right time, Jesus died for us. He didn't wait for us to get it together, you see. He gave us enough time to see that we couldn't. He didn't wait for us to get ourselves together. Christ died for us while we were alienated from him and had really no interest in him. We were helpless and we were guilty, and at this time, Christ died for us, the ungodly. Folks, you give yourself to someone who is lovable. You connect with someone who attracts you. Your affections are aroused by somebody 
who's attractive and lovable. That's human love, but God's love is categorically different. It isn't natural, it's supernatural. You see, he gave himself for the unlovely. His love embraces the unlovely. At the right time, Christ died for the weak and for the helpless and for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died for the unlovely. It's us. We were weak and helpless, unable to save ourselves. And at the right time, predetermined by God, the Lord Jesus visited our planet and died for us. We, who are sinners. This tells me it appears that God loves sinners. Isn't that interesting? Seems that God's primary concern, in fact, is to save sinners. You see, at the right time, he died for ungodly sinners. Now, to God, sin is repulsive. I'm not minimizing that. But it appears that the one who sins is not, to him, repulsive. He came to redeem us. I remember once when I was serving a church many years ago in another state, Ohio, actually, I visited a family who were members of the church, and I went, and we sat, we ate, and we were chatting about different things, great couple. I asked them about their neighbors, and they said, oh, we don't spend much time with them. We don't see them much. I said, well, why is that? Oh, they just cuss up a storm. Every time we get together, they're always cussing. We just can't tolerate that cussing. Well, you know... (laughs) The couple was right, the Christian couple, to be repulsed by the cussing. I got that. I think the Lord is repulsed by it also. But with him, things are a little different. Though repulsed with the cussing, he came to reach out to the cussers. But my friends, my fellow Christians, decided, based upon the uh, distasteful behavior of the next-door neighbors, they could erect a barrier and have nothing to do with them. What if transcendent deity approached us that way what if he said i don't want to get cooties by hanging with ones such as you i'm god you are ungodly what if he said i think i'll keep my holy distance from you who are unholy where would we be we would be without hope no we can't do that oh jesus took a stand on sin I won't minimize it, but he came to save, redeem, embrace the sinner. We have to make the same kind of distinction. You see, Jesus died for the ungodly. Now, listen to this. If this is true, if Jesus, in fact, died for the ungodly, it occurs to me, tell me if I'm right, this is true, if he died for the ungodly, then this means that the ungodly no longer have a reason not to turn to him accepting him as savior you see a person can't say well maybe you can be forgiven by god saved and redeemed by him but not me for i am so ungodly then you say great you qualify because based upon this phrase jesus came and died for the ungodly Today I had a conversation with someone, a phone call. It's a person out of state, and uh, we knew each other some time ago, and he's fallen on hard times, moral failures, and all the rest, and he was just lamenting about what a wretch he was and so on, and I found myself saying maybe the wrong thing. I said, yeah, you are. So that's not too good, is it? 
I told him, I don't even think you know the half of how bad you are. I, I, I think you are desperately uh, wicked. That's what I told him. I told him, you are trapped in your sin. You like it too much. It comes easy. It's natural for you. You are in big trouble. And then I said, oh, wait a second. Something just occurred to me. I read it today. It says this. Jesus died for the ungodly. That's you, my ungodly friend. Well, he actually listened. And he actually found himself fulfilling the prerequisite for the grace of God. He is the ungodly one for whom, for whom Jesus died. Folks, this whole thing is quite remarkable uh, as a result of which Paul says this in verse 7, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. You see, it's a human instinct, isn't it, to want to live, not to want to die. Therefore, sacrificing one's life to save the life of another must come with certain conditions. It's possible that the person who is righteous, that is to say, the person living by standards, laws, rules, religious or otherwise, it's possible that someone would be willing to exchange his or her life to save the life, maybe, of a righteous man. It's not likely, but it's possible. It may be even a little more likely that someone would offer his or her life to save the life, not of a righteous man, but of a good man. A good man is someone who's good, lives in a good way. You just like that person because you have a bit of an affectionate, emotional tie to a, this is a person who's been good to you. So yeah, you may have a higher probability of being willing to exchange your life if you had to for that person. But to tell you the truth, that's not statistically very likely either. Now I can see a parent grandparent rushing into the way of an oncoming car about to strike a child or grandchild and substituting their life for that child's. I can see that kind of a thing where you offer your life to save the life of someone you so deeply love. I can even see in certain combat situations, I can see a soldier, we know about this sort of thing, falling, for instance, on a grenade so as to sacrifice his life, to save the lives of his friends. We can imagine this, but I find it unimaginable that a soldier would fall on a grenade to save the life of his enemies. Could you imagine that? That's the love of God for us. Jesus took the grenade. He fell on the grenade. Don't you get it? He died not for the lovely, not for his friends, not for those who are worthy. He died for the ungodly. Don't, let, don't miss that. That's you. That's me. You qualify. I qualify. But I went, this is hard to take, isn't it? Because I don't have anything to relate it to in life. And God knows this. And so he says, I'm going to help you to get this. I'll give you some evidence of my love. Here it is, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for I tell you, this love is not natural. That's not natural. That is supernatural 
love. And I don't get it, and therefore I get the demonstration of it. He demonstrated his own love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, Jesus on the cross is God's premier proof of his love for us. Now, he may along the way give additional proofs of his love, but he can give no greater proof. Are you looking for evidence of the love for God? Then you may be looking in all the wrong places. Look to the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But you perhaps have run into people who say to you, you know, all this God is love stuff that you Christian believe in. I wish I could, but uh, I'm confronted by life's harsh realities. I'm confronted by earthquakes and uh, hurricanes and uh, tsunamis and uh, epidemics that take the life of countless thousands of people and I'm not seeing the love of God in all that. What would you say to that person? Let me offer this. Tell them that the reason you can't see the love of God in that is that you're looking in all the wrong places. Look to the cross upon which Jesus died for one such as you, an ungodly person, and therein you will find the premier manifestation, demonstration, and evidence of the love of God. Don't try to offer answers to the unanswerable. Give the answer that everyone who will can understand. Do you want evidence of the love of God, even if it contravenes all else that you see? in the world look to the cross would you fall on a grenade for enemies that's what he did he took the hit an excruciating one so that you and I in a state of rebellion could be set free forgiven and adopted into his family I have to tell you this demonstration of God's love isn't just about him dying, it's about whom he died for. (laughs) He died for weak and helpless and ungodly rebels who sin against God. That's who he died for. Look no further for a demonstration of God's loving nature. Jesus dying for ones such as us ought to persuade us that God's love, this is really good, is unmotivated by anything in us. Think about it. If he died for us when we were weak and helpless and ungodly, that means his love for us is not due to anything in us. You know why that's good news? That means it can't be undone by anything in us. I find here a basis for eternal security. I find here the reason why I'll never forfeit my salvation. Because it was bequeathed to me simply as an emanation of the loving character of God. It's not because he saw any potential, any good thing in me. He didn't see any virtue. He didn't see any cleanness. He didn't see any worthwhileness. He saw a helpless, weak, ungodly rebel. His love for me simply was intrinsically motivated because he came to save, not to destroy. And that means I can never forfeit it. I didn't bring it about. I don't sustain it. At my worst, he still remains 
my Savior. There was no good in us to call forth God's love to begin with, and God is not now looking to us for something, some reason to sustain his love. His love is entirely free. It's free of any goodnesses or badnesses in us. Folks, this is the basis to me of eternal security. Those who struggle with this thing think they have contributed to their salvation in some way, and when they withdraw their contribution, they think God has withdrawn his salvation. You didn't contribute one iota. I didn't do part, and God did his part. I did nothing, just as I am, without one plea. I came with a hand. You know what was in it? Nothing. It was empty. It still is empty. That's the basis of eternal security. Folks, God's love for us is sourced in God himself. It's not sourced in us, and therefore, we who have accepted by faith his crucified son are eternally loved. You know why? Because God who is unchangeable remains an eternal loving God. Your eternity and mine is not based upon me hanging in there, being virtuous, doing good things. No, God's eternal love is based on his eternal nature. Don't you see? That's the way it is. If he's paid the greatest price, he did, to bring us into a love relationship with him, do you think for one moment he will allow us to be lost in the end? Does that make sense to you? You know what Paul says? No way! Look, verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, if he shed blood for us, Paul says, much more than having been done already, we shall, that's future, we shall be saved, look at this, from the wrath of God through him. Can I put it simply? If you are a believer, you will never be condemned to hell. That's about as simple as I could put it. If you're a believer, you will never be condemned to hell. Listen, if God has justified us by his blood, then how much more shall we be saved from his wrath through Jesus Christ? If Christ died to save us when we were unrighteous, how much more will he save us now that we are in right standing with him? If Christ died for us when we were his enemies... How much more will he do for us now that we are his friends? If God loved us when we were sinners, how much more will he shower his love upon us now that we are his kids? You see the argument? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If this, then surely that. If the greater, if he shed his blood for us, then how much more will he sustain us in a loving relationship, making us immune from the wrath of God to come? Verse 10 continues the thought. You see, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus died as a result. We were, past tense, reconciled to God. But Jesus did not stay dead. And it is his life that keeps us reconciled to God. His death obtained reconciliation for us. That's a relationship term. His life sustains it. 
not you, not me. His life sustains it. His death saved us, but his life keeps us saved. Don't you see why those who struggle sadly with this notion that it's possible to lose your salvation, they're missing it entirely, folks. You're not understanding salvation. His death saved us, but his life, remember, he's a risen Savior. What do you think he's doing now? His death saved us, but it's his life that keeps us saved. You don't keep yourself saved by being a good person. You ain't a good person. The one who saved us in his death keeps us saved in his life. If his death, let me put it this way, if his death had power to save us, how much more do you think his life has power to keep us saved forevermore? And then Paul says in verse 11, and not only this, you know what that means? He says, uh, folks, we're not done yet. That's what that means. He said, class is not yet dismissed. Paul is saying, I've just shared with you truth. That's what Paul said. This is what you have in Christ Jesus. But you're not done yet just knowing this. And not only this, here's the application. But we also exult. That means to boast, to glory, to rejoice. We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I can't boast in my good deeds. I can't boast in my denomination. I can't take joy in my morals and ethics and disciplines and all that kind of stuff. I can't do anything, I can't do anything like that. But Paul says in light of what he has just said, here's what you can boast in. Here's what you could glory in. Here's what you could take joy in. It's in God himself. No, no, you, you can be thankful for his gifts, but Paul is saying, no, no, this is much better. Don't just rejoice in the gifts given. You can rejoice in the giver of the gifts. <laughs> you can insult in God because God has done all this. He has affected reconciliation. He sustains it through his life. He affected salvation through his death. He keeps it going until it is consummated at the marriage supper of the Lamb through his resurrected life. You know what we can do about it, Paul says? Try harder. No, no, no. He says you could just rejoice. You know what he says? You may be eligible for the grief support group in a few minutes. You may be carrying a load that sometimes seems just a little too much to carry. You may be suffering all manner of loss, physical affliction, and relational difficulties, and financial challenges, all the rest. These are questions we'll have to ask the Lord one day. Oh, God, why did you let all this happen to those of us whom you love? We'll get a good answer from him one day. And you know what we're going to say? We'll say, oh, now I got it. But we may have to wait for, for that kind of experience till we get to heaven. But, 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 but for now, for those of us who are in the throes of the hardships of life, you know what Paul says? But in light of all this that is already true of you, in spite of you, take a joy break. Take a joy break from the labors and challenges and burdens which beseech you and assail you and Quench the spirit in you. Take a joy break. No, that's not happiness. I didn't say that. You know what Paul is saying? You used to find your emotional highs in other things. Now find your emotional high in God himself. Some 
when coming upon him will shake in their boots. Oh, every knee will bow, but some in fear. But Paul is saying, oh, but that's not true of you who've already been reconciled, justified by the blood of the Lamb. You, you don't have to fear God. You can take joy. Your peaked emotional experience can be in your personal relationship with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. Could I tell you something? There's not a Christian in here who could lose anything that we really need to go on. I'm not minimizing anyone's pain. I'm just telling you, there's not anyone here who could lose what is most essential. What is most essential is to be reconciled, to be in right relationship, to be in a love relationship with Almighty God because that and that alone persists on into eternity. Not our health, not our wealth, not anything. Do you know marriage doesn't even persist into eternity? Did you know that? Surely not our academic pursuits. Surely not our stock portfolio. Surely not any of this. That which persists on into eternity is the relationship which by God's grace through our faith has been established with him now. And that essential can never be forfeited by anyone. Take a joy break. I didn't say, I didn't say minimize your pain and, and don't feel permitted to weep and cry. I didn't say that. But be careful about grieving as those who have no hope. I must tell you, we are people whose hope is based on the sustaining love of Almighty God. I defy you. I defy you to come up with a plan to persuade God to let you go. I defy you. Show me a biblical plan. Work out a strategy whereby you, someone redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, could ever dissuade God from loving you unconditionally, irreversibly, and eternally. Come up with a plan. You can't. Therefore, take a joy break and say, oh, God, I'm not guaranteed anything this side of heaven. Circumstances come and go. Life has its ups and downs. Those close to me can suffer and be gone. I could suffer loss. We're not immune to these things, but oh, God, I will never lose what I need most. I need to be in your grasp. I need to be hugged by you. I need to be pursued by you. I need to be sought after by you. I need to be loved by you throughout eternally, eternity. Folks, we can never, ever forfeit that. So I ask you again, are you tired of being a Christian? No. The whole world is looking for love in all the wrong places. We know the person in whom supernatural love, in spite of the unlovability of the object of his love, is found. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, make us to be a joyous people. I didn't say happy. That is a very fluctuating emotion. Joy is an informed state of affairs. It surely affects our emotions. But it persists in spite of circumstances. Oh God, we're in your grasp. And though ours oftentimes grows weak, yours remains so strong. Thank you for an unbreakable bond established
by your goodness and grace, nothing else, just by your goodness and grace. Thank you, O God, for suffering so excruciatingly while we were in a state of sheer and outright rebellion against you, and therefore, how much more now that we've been brought close, considered to be sons and daughters, how much more now will your love sustain us until the time when we see you face to face? Oh God, we must be the most joyous people on earth. Put it in us, oh God, not to let anything extinguish the joy. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.